The Healthy Golf Podcast, Episode 28, with Bill Miller. Welcome to the Healthy Golf Podcast, a podcast designed to help you transform your golf game and your life. Join your host, Dr. Joe O, as he chats with experts on all things golf performance to keep you feeling great and playing your best on and off the course. Welcome to another episode of the Healthy Golf Podcast. And on this week's episode, I'm really super excited to bring on Bill Miller of Bill Miller Training. Bill is a certified strength and conditioning coach who primarily specializes in working with rotational athletes. And most of his work has been done uh, with baseball players and javelin throwers, but he's also done other rotational athletes and I'm sure other athletes as well, including golfers. So Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Bill, super excited. Why don't you just go ahead and give everyone a quick background on you and kind of how you got into what you're into and kind of what you're doing now. Yeah. So currently I train athletes out of a facility in Palatine, Illinois called Dream Big Athletics. And uh, we're located about 30 minutes west of Chicago. So I got into training mostly because of my baseball career ending. Um, I needed something to do and, and training was kind of like the best uh, route for me to go at the time because uh, in professional baseball you have a lot of different levels and the lowest level is called independent ball so it's not affiliated with any sort of major league teams that we know of and independent ball is a grind you don't make much money and it's basically you're living on the dream that some scout sees you do something good at some point and gives you a contract so it's um it's quite a grind and, and it kind of worked well for me training out of this facility, I basically started running, you know, small little kid training camps, um, you know, back about five or six years ago when I was still trying to play. And then, uh, you know, over time, it just kind of grew into something I realized my baseball career was ending, and I needed to move on to the next chapter of my life. But what's interesting is a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about today comes from that context. So when I was a baseball player, I was probably the biggest, strongest guy on the field whenever you looked at our, our teams. And I could out bench press, out deadlift, out squat pretty much everyone on the field. But the problem was I was not hitting the ball far like everyone else, and I was not throwing fast like everyone else. I had good speed and good power, but not great power, not good enough to make it to the next level or to keep my career going. So I really began to realize that, hey, all I'm doing in my training is heavy strength, which is a slow speed, no matter how you do it. And over time, I began to realize that, hey, if my deadlift goes from 550 pounds to 600 pounds this offseason, is that really going to make me hit the ball far like how this skinny kid from Texas is hitting the ball or how this you know, uh, you know, skinny guy from uh, California is throwing the ball 10 miles per hour faster than me? what is missing in my training that I need to start targeting. And what I've began to realize over time is that the more and more specific we can get with those goals or those big tests for power, um, the better your training is going to be. So that's kind of like the context of where I come from. I think a lot of people see me on Instagram and they're like, like, oh, you're a big medicine ball guy. What does that mean? Blah, blah, blah. And it's because I came from the background of being West Side Barbell, bro you know, 350 pound bench is all that matters. But in reality, you have to be able to move and express that force at very high speeds. And so now that's what I really point to as the end goal for a lot of our strength training 
uh, you know, at the end of the off season, if that makes sense. Yeah. It makes, makes a ton of sense. Um, just to go right into it, I would say is what, what are kind of your assessments that you do do on your players? Uh, so the first one that I do is just a lying on your back supine medicine ball throw. We'll test that one at different ranges, usually like a 10 pound, six pound and two pound ball. The 10 pound is nice because it's a good reflection of what sort of overall force you're capable of. So for example, I'm the biggest, strongest guy in the gym. Usually I can throw that 10 pound ball really, really fast um, relative to everyone else. But when it comes to that two pound ball, the more at the velocity end of the spectrum, um, I usually get my doors blown off by these skinny kids that can throw a baseball really fast. So that sort of measure is a nice uh, force velocity profile where you're basically looking at how this athlete produces force at the, the heavy force end and the velocity at that lighter, higher speed end. That's my first one that I really like. And then you can get more specific with it. I like a rotational medicine ball throw. Rotational scoop tosses work really nice. And basically all you have to do is just take the radar gun out and measure it. And that works great for our facility because we're a baseball facility to start with. We have radar guns and everything that you would need. So the rotational scoop toss and the lying on your back supine overhead throw, those are the two main metrics that I really like, especially for upper body uh, power, if you will. Gotcha. Um, have just kind of curious, have you ever done uh, any of the TPI courses or anything along those lines? You know, everybody's always recommended them and I've never like had the time or found the time to go and do them, to be honest with you. But I do know I've, I've seen little snippets and they, they do have a few measures like this. I know their um, their vertical jump, I believe, is, is one of the big ones they found correlation with. Um, and and so with lower body strength, it gets interesting. In my opinion, I feel that a vertical jump height is a good thing to track. But I don't know if it's always the best indicator. So someone like me, I weigh 230 pounds. So if I just lost 15 pounds and I got super lean and everything, I would probably jump higher. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to hit a ball farther. So I look at it more as like I think jumping is great, but you have to focus on your own number improving, not trying to say, well, if you can't jump 30 inches, you're going to be a terrible long driver or a terrible baseball player. That's in my opinion, that's not how, how I would look at it, but I know TPI is, is so much more in depth than that. Um, but yeah, that's something that I've, I've heard of before is, is they like the vertical jump. In my opinion, I would rather go with something like a, a deadlift, like a trap bar deadlift for speed at different loads. Um, just something I've been looking at more and more recently is like a 225 pound deadlift. How fast are you moving that? And that's actually a pretty good correlation from what I found with, you know, just a good lower body power measure. But mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of different ones. I'm sure that, that they do that, that cover a lot more ground than that. You know what I mean? Right. And you had mentioned just in your intro, when you were talking about moving, you know, getting stronger, getting stronger, and that might be good and all, but after a certain point, it has diminishing returns. Right. So what is your kind of, um, I'm always interested to hear what people's takes are on what is like your kind of minimal acceptance level of say strength. And mm-hmm. like after once someone reaches that point, like, like, like I said, they're going to have diminishing returns on just getting stronger because especially if they're trying to move fast, it's not really going to necessarily add up to anything else if they're not training fast. Yeah, that's, that's a hundred percent. The way I look at it is, can you deadlift twice your body weight? That's usually a pretty good metric. 
Um, can you bench 1.5 times your body weight or close to it? 1.2 times your body weight. If you can't do those things, you're probably force deficient, but still, like I was talking about before with that force velocity profile, that's going to tell you more than, than anything else. Um, you know, how you produce force. If you relatively speaking, if you really struggle with that lightweight medicine ball, um, you probably do need to train more at the velocity end, no matter what your heavy strength training metrics are like. But if we were to just focus on those uh, heavy strength training metrics, I would say deadlift around 350 pounds or more. If you can't do that, you probably need to deadlift a little bit more. And, and for bench press, for at least the baseball community, 225 pounds seems to be like that benchmark of like, yeah, once you hit 225, there's that big diminishing return. But getting up to 225, you usually see pretty consistent gains in terms of velocity. Um, squatting, same thing, around that 350-pound range. Some guys are really good at it. Some guys aren't. So you do have to take an individualized approach there. But I would say those are, are kind of the ranges. Um, you know, but all you have to do is, is just look around. And look at who is elite in what. Are you elite in squat and deadlift or are you elite in your sport? Um, you know, so in the baseball community, usually like a 500 pound deadlift or a 300 pound bench press is elite. Like that's the top of what you're going to find on most teams. So if we know you're encroaching upon that range and your velocity still sucks, then we know that's that's where the diminishing returns are coming from. So yeah, makes a ton of sense. And then just to clarify, you work, I assume, with a lot of younger athletes, elite athletes for the most part. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a nice mix right now for me. I usually, before COVID started, it was mostly younger and high school group kids with a handful of college and pro guys. But now it's starting to shift because we're not taking on any youth athletes right now with COVID restrictions. So I actually get to train. I got about 15 guys that I'm training right now consistently over the course of the day. And I think it's five professionals, five college guys, and five high schoolers. So it's really like a nice mix. Yeah. Um, and it is cool to see like the difference in strength between the college and pro guys is nothing. Like there is no difference in terms of weight room strength between those college and pro guys. But when you look at how they throw, I would say like a four to six pound medicine ball, something in the fairly light range, you can really tell the difference of how the pro guys apply force. Um, it's, it is really, really cool to see how explosive they can get when they have a medicine ball in their hands. Awesome. Yeah. And then, um, just as a, cause I know age ranges of listeners, I assume vary in this, um, just to throw this out there, you know, if you're 65 years old, don't try to aim to get like a 300 pound squat or deadlift odds are that that's not going to happen, but just go off of what's relative to you. I mean, again, at that point, I always like to aim for like body weight. Um, at least body weight, if you can get a little bit higher for that, especially for the older population, mm -hmm. that's what I aim for at least. Um, but then, yeah, so let's go into some medicine ball training. One, I think it's great because they are obviously relatively affordable for the most part. Um, and people can buy them. Now you, I know you assess speeds with multiple different things, depending on what it is and what the apparatus you're using, right? You train, uh, with push, which is a device basically that measures how fast things are moving essentially. Um, and you use your radar gun and then obviously, um, another essentially radar gun for like swing speeds, um, which isn't always the greatest to measure those other things such as throwing or something like that. Um, yeah. but talk about medicine ball training, 
kind of the benefits of that and then you know throwing velocity the different weights and and all of those things yeah for sure so obviously when it comes to those medicine ball throws we're finally like there's no other movements that we can do that would be specific to the sporting movement other than just swinging your club or throwing a baseball so now we're we're starting to creep closer and closer to that specific end of velocity and the movements that we're doing are more plane specific we can start to rotate so that is really nice that we're starting to marry the weight room to the uh the sport and that's why I love medicine balls so much because it's a good, not only is it a good training tool, but it's a good indicator of the power that you're creating. So that's something for people to understand. Like you don't have to do tons and tons of medicine ball throws in your training. I would recommend at the very least though, doing a few sets of a medicine ball throw once a week, just to make sure that your training is improving that velocity. Now, the problem is a lot of people don't have radar guns. So what do you do if you don't have a radar gun? you can throw the medicine ball for distance. And this is where it gets pretty cool. There are a few exercises like the rotational scoop toss works pretty well for distance. The medicine ball chest pass works very well too. Um, and a lying on your back supine throw. You can do those for distance. And what's really cool is I've been learning a lot about external focusing lately. So having a goal that you can see that you're trying to hit, trying to hit a mark, just by putting a mark like a cone or something to try to hit 30, 40 feet out there automatically increases intent or effort or something with an exercise. And it really starts to uh, drive home how the athlete can like produce so much more force than they think in an exercise just by having that goal. So that's something that I, I always recommend. Like it's not good enough to just do the medicine ball throws. It's better to have a goal or a target to hit when you're doing them because it can be so easy to lull yourself to sleep just doing some chest passes nice and easy off the wall or maybe doing doing some slams or something if you're not trying to hit a mark it's really really hard to get the most out of that movement um, so that's something i try to drive home to people at the very least once a week just have a day where you're throwing the ball for distance to see what's what's really happening um but yeah i, I also think too with that comes um, the fatigue factor. I think a lot of people pick up a five pound medicine ball and think, oh, I could throw this 150 times today and I'm going to get better. But that's not, you know, that we know that's, that's not what's going to happen. So we yeah. really have to make sure that every single rep is maximal effort, is maximal focus and, and on the technique and just trying to drive the ball as hard as you possibly can into the wall or, or to the radar gun, whatever the case is. So if, uh, if you look at it like that from a performance perspective, now you're starting to see what volume you should be working with. So, for example, if I have a guy doing five sets of five medicine ball throws for the radar gun, and by that fifth set, velocity is decreasing by one or two miles per hour on average, then it's probably time to shut them down because they're running into fatigue. You know, if, if these movements are, are high velocity, and that means that they're so based on the central nervous system firing at 100% maximal rate, maximal rate coding to, to recruit all those motor units very fast. If that's what our goal is, then any sort of central nervous system fatigue is going to slow us down, which means we're not going to tap into those adaptations that we want to see. So that's really where the medicine ball throws, I think, can, can really start to help athletes. Yeah, I always find, at least when I'm programming, like medicine ball throws or any kind of power thing like that, you know, I mean, we're talking minimal sets of three to five reps. And even though you are throwing 
like a four to eight pound medicine ball or somewhere around there and may not be super taxing as what would be like, you know, an all out sprint. Mm -hmm. But like you said, yeah, for the, for power development and speed, we're using the nervous system and it takes a lot of effort for that to happen. And then you need to rest for a long time. And then I know it feels like you don't need to rest for, you know, two to three minutes, but that's what your nervous system needs. So it can be, like you said, super easy for the body to, or someone to just assume that like, oh yeah, I'm just going to do 150 of these and it's going to get better. But over time, you may not notice those, like you said, those small changes in that velocity drop. And then you're just kind of training for no reason. Essentially, you're just training yourself to be slower for the most part. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's really a big reason why I wanted to write the book swing fast. That was one of the biggest points that I've found. Like I see a lot of people doing the right exercises or doing exercises that are like, you know, would fit in most of the programs that I write, but it's the intent and the measurement behind those movements that really creates the adaptations that we want to see with uh our athletes that's how the magic happens it's not doing this exercise it's doing this exercise with intent and measuring to improve that exercise that's where it really happens in my opinion right so i have seen some of those um things that you've been posting on instagram and social media about external focus for kind of power development which you just alluded to um tell me about some things that you've done besides just like placing um, a cone somewhere or a marker to hit, um, what kinds of things have you actually seen kind of in-house versus someone just not, you know, leaving it as an internal focus? Yeah. So, so here's something really cool. So like you had mentioned before, we have the push band that goes across your forearm or, or anywhere in your arm really. And we track medicine ball slam speed. Basically it's just tracking how fast your arm is going. And so we got a lot of, uh, like, college guys coming back you know over from from break and stuff like that and they had never done this before so they're like oh this is cool it's gonna see how fast we can slam the medicine ball all right yeah and so what i'll do sometimes is i'll have the cell phone which is attached to the sensor i'll have the cell phone in front of them putting the numbers and they can see the numbers so it's 10.5 10.7 they keep trying to beat their number by the end of the set they're getting like 11 point something and then I'll take the phone away. I'll say, hey, I got, I got to charge my phone real quick. Just go ahead, do your set. I'll let you know what the numbers were. The numbers almost all the time were down about 0.3 or 0.4 meters per second on average. And this was crazy because it wasn't just with one or two athletes. It was with like 10 of the 15 athletes that I trained. So it's it, it really drives home that point of like, if you do not have a mark or some sort of feedback after you do a rep, um, you could be kind of lulled to sleep of just, I'm just doing the same thing going through the motions. So, um, that was a really interesting one that I found. And, and this is where I really started to get the, the gears turning about how important that external focus is. Um, but yeah, if you don't have a sensor like that, what you could also do is, is do sort of, um, you know, sort of like you could do broad jumps for distance. Uh, that one works pretty well to just trying to hit the mark. Um, you could also run sprints if you have a partner, have them start about two to three steps in front of you. And, you know, you guys go at the same time and you're trying to catch uh, your partner. And, and, and so just stuff like that. It, it's just having that um, that little bit of extra motivation can really make a difference in all, all the reps that you do. So instead of having four or five good reps in a session, you're getting 20 to 25 really good reps in a session. That's 
the idea here. Um, but yeah, without any sort of like bar speed sensors, it's hard to do this with weight training. Um, so here's another cool thing that I've been doing though. I've been trying to figure out a way to measure fatigue, monitor fatigue during strength training. And what I was doing the other day was I was doing a, a bench press superset with a kneeling medicine ball chest pass for distance. And in the first four or five sets, I was uh, getting that medicine ball to go about 25 feet or so. And by my last sets, I was only getting it to go about 15 to 16 feet. So the medicine ball throw was really the indicator of fatigue. So if you don't have, if you have enough room, obviously, and, and you want to try to see, hey, like, when should I shut down my, my uh, weightlifting exercises? When is it time that that bar speed is declining? If you don't want to go just based off of feel, you can superset with a medicine ball chest pass or, or maybe a broad jump for distance if you're doing squats or deadlifts. And you can just see what sort of fatigue is happening. And, and when you start to decline in that high velocity movement, then it's time to probably shut it down with the strength training exercises for that day. Okay. So you would stop strength training um, versus maybe reduce the weight or reduce the amount of reps someone's doing? Right. You, All you those could options? do that as well. Yeah, okay. you, you could do that as well, of course. But, um, but yeah, like that's probably when you know the, the bar speed is declining. So then whatever route you wanted to take after that would be the route that you would go. So, yeah. Gotcha. What is kind of um, your threshold for reduction in having them stop um, in terms of, you know, whether that's distance measured or if you have the, the speed with push there, um, what's kind of mm-hmm. your like threshold? I usually say 10% of like the, the maximal uh, performance that you can get in a movement. If you have a 10% drop off rate, then it's probably time to shut it down completely. I usually shoot for like the five to 10% drop off rate. So for example, if you're moving a bar at 1.0 meters per second and by your sixth set, you're only getting it 0.9. Yeah, it's time to definitely shut it down. Um, I'm not sure if you know of Chris Beardsley at all of uh, strength. I've heard the name. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So him and I, we talk a lot about training and, and he's a huge influence on me. Well, what, Chris posted about maybe about a month or so ago was the study that looked at type two X fiber retention rate. So the type two X fibers, those are the ones that are super, super fast twitch. The ones that kind of are the mark of a great athlete. Um, They have more type two X fibers. At least that's what the research has shown. And so when you look at strength training in terms of velocity loss, once you get beyond that, like 10% velocity loss, you start increasing type 2A fibers and it's shifting away from type 2X fibers. Whereas if you stayed within a 10% velocity loss rate, no more than that, you actually retain your type 2X fibers pretty well. So, you know, we had mentioned diminishing returns about five or 10 minutes ago. This is diminishing returns of, on strength training. So we can strength train very heavy and, that, and that's a good thing. That's okay. We just have to make sure that if we're getting to that point where we're not quite sure if an athlete should be doing a lot of strength training or not, all you got to do is look at their performance and, and their bar speeds. And if you know that their bar speeds are declining uh, more than 10%, then it's time to definitely shut them down because that's where you would get those diminishing returns from. So um, it is a very, very interesting thing of how bar speed can really help to advance the athletes, not only in the weight room, but also retaining that, that high velocity strength or power, if you will. 
Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I haven't haven't seen that or read that. Um, I'm pretty sure I probably follow Chris. I just don't, yeah. you know, with the amount of people you follow these days, it's just goes through. Who knows? But yeah. um, but yeah, that's sure. pretty interesting. That after after a little bit, that it goes, you know, you start to see more development of those slower type fibers, basically for the most part. Which is obviously, you know, anyone who's in a power dominant sport is not what you want for the most part. Right. Well, and then the, the balancing act is, well, what if I'm an athlete who I always get hurt? Perhaps you need more hypertrophy. I remember the story of uh, Greg Rose uh, from TPI or, or on base you, whatever it is now, but Greg Rose used Both, to yeah. <laughs> Rory McIlroy. Um, yeah. and, and so when Rory was a kid, he rotated super, super fast. It, like he was rotating like a PGA tour driver at age 14 and 15, but he was so scrawny and weak that he would run into low back issues and, and, and he'd get injured all the time. So with him, he's an athlete that you say, yeah, you already rotate very fast. We just need to pack on some muscle mass onto you to try to protect those joints a little bit more. If that's where you're at, then it's probably okay to train with higher velocity loss per set, because then you're going to run into more of those hypertrophy type gains. That's okay. Then. So you really do have to know with what athlete you're working with and where where do we need to stress them more? It's probably okay to train those Rory McIlroy types, those really fast, skinny kids. It's okay to train with higher velocity loss per set. But somebody like me, who's already a big, strong guy that's slower, I probably don't want to train that velocity loss per set. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I think... Um... Basically, one thing that I have done with some other colleagues who have taken some data on golfers specifically and have looked at like vertical jump and some of those other power tests like seated chest pass, they do a like a rotational shot put pass with a medicine ball for distance. And um, I tend to not like that sit up pass test throw, but I th it's not bad, I don't think. Um, I end up doing it with all one size medicine ball just to keep things simple for the most part. Yeah. But anyway... Um, when you look at club head speed and you look at all these other tests and their mobility, basically a lot of times people end up having more than enough club head speed versus mm -hmm. what they have in terms of strength or mobility. And just exactly like you said, like there's really no need to keep working on getting faster right now. I mean, it's still going to be important to maintain that, of course, mm -hmm. but you really need to be focused on getting stronger, whatever that is, whether that's, you know, building up some muscle mass and just pure strength, because if you continue to rotate as fast as you can, you're going to end up probably resulting or having, have a potential injury, of course, um, which yeah. is just going to set you back even further. And, and that's very common, at least that I have seen in, in young kids, especially golfers, they're already fast as it is. They're usually scrawny for the most part, and they don't have a lot of strength or muscle mass. And so yeah. they end up getting hurt, which is not ideal, of course. One thing that yeah. I saw that yeah. you were posting a lot about recently, which I thought was super interesting, and I try to do it myself now, like when I'm trying to do some speed speed swings, is uh, trying to get everything to relax, especially like in your jaw and stuff like that. I think a lot of people tense up because they want to swing fast, and they think that that's going to help. It just seems to be, it makes common, it seems almost common sense for the most part, but for you to relax actually will help you speed up more. Can, can yeah. you talk about that a little bit more? Because I've seen you do crazy things on Instagram where you from like 1D, I think that one to like 138 or something like that and just by relaxing. Yeah. yeah. And and so I got to give credit to Ben Brewster, who's a friend of mine. He runs Tread Athletics, who's a, mostly pitching and throwing for baseball. But um, 
yeah, he said, whenever I see a thrower who's got their jaw clenched, automatically he knows that's a cue that he needs to relax the jaw. And what I think is happening here is it's almost like um, like an inhibitory effect where we're turning on certain muscle groups that need to be relaxed and allow for those agonist muscle groups, those prime movers, to really be the driving force for the movement. So if you're tensing up here, you're probably going to be tensing up in your grip. You might be tensing up somewhere else that needs to relax. It needs to turn off to allow for the agonist to really pull on that joint super fast. So there's no, uh, you know, I believe it's a reciprocal inhibition that's happening there. You don't want any sort of inhibition at all with the movement. What it could also be is just like an inefficient neural signaling. So if that CNS has to send a signal to the hips to fire or to the pecs to fire, but it's also going to the jaw to fire and the fists to fist up. If that's happening, then you know that the CNS cannot fire as, as efficiently as it can. And, and that's a really big, big point that I try to get to athletes is like turn off everything that you don't need and then try to focus solely on what needs to work for a throw and then slowly ramp it up. So like the, the drill that I like a lot, I actually learned this from javelin throwing. It's called the Soviet drill or the Russian drill, something like that, where all they would do as relaxed as they could be is try to hit a mark about 30 meters out and then stay as relaxed as they can on their next throw, hit 35 on their next throw, hit 40 on their next throw after that hit 50 meters. So they keep ramping up the distance that they're throwing without trying to ramp up the perceived effort. And I try to do the same thing with the golf speed sensor, and it really works well for me. Now, I have gotten some people who've told me, Bill, this doesn't work for me at all. But where they're coming from is probably not from the same place that I am. I'm coming from the background, as I had mentioned before, where all I did was heavy lifting. And, and I'm used to on every single rep. So when I think high intent, I think, let it rip. But they might not be coming from that same place. They might already have a pretty efficient neural signaling process. So it really won't help them as much as it helped me, where I was really able to tap into the most velocity I could on that day because of how I relaxed. And since then, th basically, the way I, I, I try to do my swings is I'll do it in sets of four, four or five reps. And I'll just take my first swing at like 80 or 90 percent, just super relaxed. And then faster and faster and faster. So I really think that that's the best way that works for me. But some people who are listening to this might try it out. and It might not work very well for you. But you, 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 the, the point is tensing up will never work. Relaxing has a better chance to work, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then um, you just kind of did it for, obviously, most people are listening to this. but And most people know this, but you, especially in the golf swing, the theory is that you should lead with your lead arm. That should be where most of your force is generated from and all, you know, minus the legs, all that stuff. But I find that I'm more of a trail arm guy and um, just that's my dominant side. It just seems to overtake things. And my left side just doesn't seem to want to ever do things. And I know that there's some like professional golfers like Justin Rose. He, he does his trail arm does a lot of the work for him versus his lead arm. But I know you do a lot of, um, uh, like lead arm throwing and kind of yeah. stuff that I've seen. Yeah. Stuff like that. Can you talk more about that? Cause I know that, um, at least in TPI too, they talk about, um, grip strength and it should be, 
they do a grip strength just with a dynamometer. And basically they mm -hmm. end up saying that your lead arm should be stronger. And they have found that in most PGA players that they've tested that your, their lead arm is stronger in terms of grip strength versus their trail arm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that would make sense as the lead arm is really applying a ton of force. So if at any mm -hmm. point it begins to lose sort of that like grip here, if it has a weaker grip, then maybe it won't flex the club as much. Maybe it won't transfer as much energy into the club then. Right. Um, that is an interesting one. But with the lead arm scoop toss, we yeah. have a ball that has a handle on it and it's about three pounds. And so I just said like, hey, like this could be an outstanding drill for trying to train guys who may have a, uh, a lead arm issue. So basically if you're uh, overall, like your, your two handed scoop toss is really, really good relative to everyone else, but your lead arm scoop toss alone is struggling. Then we know that's somewhere where we would have to target with your, your training. So for example, I had an athlete who uh, his exit velocity in baseball is pretty good. It's like in the mid nineties range versus an athlete who was elite. Like he was 111 miles per hour peak exit velocity so that's crazy that's off the charts and he was extremely good at that lead arm rotational scoop toss throw like he was off the charts in that one so there's definitely something there that shows hey you're only in the mid 90s and you're way way worse at this one than you are at any other medicine ball throwing exercise so maybe this is why the the missing component for you to get into the 100 mile per hour exit velocity range for baseball this is where we might have to target. So it, it it was it was it never started as a main measure for me. It was just starting as sort of like a uh, a measure to see if you were weak in a certain area. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's an interesting one. The problem is those types of medicine balls are harder and harder to find, you know, because a lot of them you get. And I think I've gone through three now where the handle just broke off because they're not meant to be thrown to a wall. <laughs> but um, yeah. But yeah, I also so, find like that might be, I feel like that's a hard movement to somewhat train to because it's such a, you have most of the force that you're developing, right. Is from your shoulder and it's mm -hmm. with that, if especially single arm and it's such a long lever arm that mm -hmm. to train that and all those muscles, of course, like the rotator cuff and some of those other scapular muscles along the shoulder blade are just super small and not necessarily, obviously they are designed to do this, but to actually build up to training those, it's not easy. And yeah. I find that, you know, of course, and a lot of people have shoulder issues. Um, mm -hmm. How do you end up maybe going about that or going around that kind of uh, issue or any of those things, basically? Yeah, that's a tough one. It really is. Because I currently train a pro uh, hitter who has had shoulder issues in his lead arm. And so what we've been doing, um, and it seems to be putting him in the right direction, what we've been doing is actually testing with a crane scale. How hard can he pull across his body? What type of force can you create from those smaller muscle groups like you were mentioning? How can he produce force in an external rotation with a crane scale? Um, and then uh, what, what was interesting was he there is a bit of a discrepancy in his lead arm. He was only able to produce about 19 pounds of force or so with his lead arm in the external rotation with the crane scale and then in his trail arm he was off the charts he was getting like mid upper 20s uh pounds of force into the crane scale so that's something there that i think i would really try to monitor with guys is are you weak 
in this joint first? Like, is there an, an actual strength issue? And if that's the case, then you know that's something that you probably shouldn't be doing a ton of high velocity work with. If you know this guy is lacking in that strength, you should probably focus more on rear delt flies and, and more of the shoulder strengthening type exercises. Um, but yeah, if you don't have a crane scale, I guess it would be a little more difficult. I mean, you know, it's something I'm still learning about, obviously. It's, uh, sure. It is a difficult thing. For sure. Obviously, if there's any time, like uh, I know there's some people who have probably never done drills like this that are listening to this podcast. If at any time you feel any sort of ow when you're doing a medicine ball throw, stop doing the medicine ball throw. I can promise you there is some sort of underlying issue that that is is uh, not going to be fixed by medicine ball throws. And this is kind of the the plight of all of this high velocity power movement that I love to do, love to track. If you do it too much, you are going to run into the same injury issues that Rory McIlroy was running into when he was younger. You know, there's there's a reason that we can't just rotate fast forever. You know, we have to have some sort of strength and stability behind the joints. So there is that that balancing act. And I can promise you, if there's any sort of um, you know injury issue or any sort of pain, and when doing a medicine ball exercise you got to slow things down and work more on the strength and the stability end of things. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm a physical therapist. So I always end up at first resulting to saying like, all right, well, let's take a look at your form first before we do anything. Like if I'm there with someone and then, you know, if, if form still seems to check out and then continue to do it and it just continues to hurt, then obviously, yes, we, we need to stop. Um, but yeah. Um, it's always good. Yeah. If you have any pain with anything, always get checked out first. Um, cause there is some sort of yeah. issue there. Um, but Bill, I will be respectful of your time and I just have a couple of just like fun questions here, but the first one is not one that I normally ask people. I'm just kind of curious. How many driver shafts have you snapped now from just Three. like trying to swing fast? Three. <laughs> <laughs> Three. Jeez. So I don't buy any drivers that are like expensive. Because one, because yeah. I know I'm going to break one, and so I don't <laughs> think I've spent more than like 90 bucks on a driver at all. And the most recent one I have has a double X uh, stiff shaft, so I've had a lot of problems trying to break this one. <laughs> okay, well, that's good, but yeah, I it's yeah, I'm up, I'm on three right now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, uh, first, first kind of like fun question here just uh, what's the best golf course you've ever played? Uh, there's one in, uh, I think it's called Waveland off of like right off the lake in Chicago. Um, it's beautiful. There's a lot of like cool people who, who golf there as well. Like, uh, Cubs players who usually go there on their off days from, from playing. So, so once in a while you can run into somebody kind of famous, but, um, I like that course just cause it's right off the lake. It's a beautiful scene. And when no one's looking, I'll just take my driver and smack one into the lake, see how far I can get it. But uh, <laughs> nice. that's the coolest course. If you ever come to Chicago, I highly recommend it. All right. Um, second question is you have a risky approach shot to the green. Uh, it's basically like a long par five. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you going for it or are you laying up? I'm going for it. Because uh, I, I know figured. the only skill that I have in golf, I suck at everything else. So there's <laughs> no point in trying to lay up at all. It's just going to be a catastrophe either way. So watch out to whoever's playing in the, in the hole next to me. <laughs> um, and then last one is you're going to go out for a round. Who is in your dream foursome? Oh man, that's a good question. I'll have you in there for sure. 
Um, <laughs> let's see. I'll have Mike Carroll from Fit for Golf. He's he's just a super smart dude. Um, and then I don't know who the the last one would be. I'm sure I, I would probably want to get like like a big league baseball player, somebody like a like a uh, like a Mike Trout, just to watch Ooh. to see how he would. Because I know I've seen him in top. Yeah, golf. right. You can yep. really hammer it just to yeah. see how he moves and stuff like that would be really cool to see. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. I know there's some big, big golfers that are MLB players or used to be. I know, like, I'm pretty sure Tom Glavin, he's a pretty big golfer. I'm almost positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I know, I know in the off season, that's what those guys like to do a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bill, what uh, if anyone wants to work with you? I know you do remote training, um, or get in contact or has questions about training or you know, learning how to program or anything along those lines, how can people get in contact with you? Um, you could just contact me directly on, on direct message with uh, Instagram at Bill Miller training is my handle. Um, I usually respond to DMS. I try to do a good job. I don't, I don't get a ton like, you know, I'll get maybe three or four a day. So I try to respond to everybody. Uh, um, yeah. And if you wanted to learn any more, check out uh, swing fast, a guide to rotational power. It's on Amazon. And, uh, yeah, so that's where I, I usually try to post as much as I can try to post at least once or twice a day about different training ideas. And, and I'm always open to learning different ideas too. So if people ever have ideas that they want to throw past me, I'm always down to listen for sure. That's awesome. And then Bill, you also, in addition to your book, you also do some, uh, like Patreon stuff too. I know you do some stuff via there in terms of teaching. I think this would be more for like strength coach or anyone who's interested in, in doing this. Um, but yeah, Patreon, I know you do some videos and blogs and stuff like that. Is that right? Yeah. The Patreon is kind of like an extension of the social media stuff. So on these social media posts, if I'm going to spend three or four or five hours sometimes on a post with research and writing and everything, I want to try to give the really dedicated coaches the time to, to, uh, to really read and go in depth with it. The Patreon is Bill Miller training. So it's real easy to find it there. Yep. I will link all this stuff up in there and, you know, social, uh, website, all that stuff and including the book book link, uh, like he said, is on Amazon. Um, and you do have a, a physical and a Kindle edition, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. Perfect. And then, uh, any last words of advice for anyone, you know, who may be listening on getting um, you know, faster? Yeah. <laughs> Swing fast and try to make training a fun environment. You know, it's, it can be a drag going through the winter. Now these winter months are going to suck with not a lot of things to do. Um, but try to make your training environment fun. And the best way to do that is find ex- exercises that you can measure broad jump for distance, throw a med ball for distance, find something fun in training that you can track and measure and try to get better over the soft season like that. Love it. Bill, thank you so much for your time and all the knowledge that you shared today. For sure. All right. That wraps up this week's episode with Bill Miller. I hope that you enjoy that episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing Bill. Hopefully you had some points in there that you could take away. If you're not following Bill, go ahead and follow him on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. I believe he's on all of those platforms and he definitely puts out lots of drills and great informational posts that you could use. Um, as always though, it's definitely most important to get assessed to make sure you know where you're at so you can really focus and customize your workouts and your performance training to what you need the most. Um, As always, those links are uh, in the show notes for Bill, so go ahead and check those out. Also, if you have not joined the Healthy Golf Facebook group, 
please go ahead and do that. I do a live training in there every week on something specific to golf and the body and or health. So go ahead, check that out. The link to join is in the show notes as well. Also, if you haven't had the chance to download the nine free workouts, please go ahead and do that as well. That link to get those is also in the show notes. And last but not least, I am running some uh, Black Friday through Cyber Monday sales. I'm also running some sales that no one else will get to see if you get on the list. I will drop that link in the show notes as well if you want to check out what those deals are. Um, that will be in there. You will also get the regular Black Friday through Cyber Monday sales as well. Um, but go ahead and check that out if you're looking for some steals this off season and really want to add 15 to 20 more yards, maybe lose a little bit of weight, or just make sure that you're not the shortest hitter, hitter in the group next season. Go ahead and check that out. I have options available for online training as well as in person. So even if you're not local to the main area, you can still work with me virtually from virtually anywhere in the world. Um, but thank you again for joining and listening. If you're in the U.S. listening to this, have a happy Thanksgiving this week. If you're not in the U.S., just have a great rest of your week and uh, look forward to dropping another episode next week. Uh, keep working hard. Keep striving for excellence in everything that you do because when you feel great, you golf great. <laughs>